Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Good morning. I want to ask you a series of questions that I want you to consider. Okay, I'm not asking you to answer them out loud. I just want you to consider for a moment. Is it morally permissible to miss a Sunday morning church service for the sake of a kid's baseball game? As a Christian, is it okay for me to have a glass of wine every night before I go to bed? Is it biblically allowable for me as a believer in Christ to go to a rated R movie? Some of you, you are just dying that you can't answer these out loud right now. But there's questions that we face in life that sometimes... There's not an immediate or easy answer. And this has always been true, not just today. In fact, some of you in the room, you remember the day when a question may have been posed, is it morally allowable to read the comics on Sunday afternoons? Some of you are thinking, that's crazy. But it was a question. There was a season where, for some people, they believed that you dishonored the Lord if you read the funny pages on Sunday. Maybe should boys and girls swim in the sw same swimming pool at the same time? There's questions that every generation deals with and processes with and can have a difficult time coming to a clear answer of what the right or morally permissible thing is to do. Why is that the case? Well... For one, we know the Bible doesn't have a verse for every situation or every question or circumstance we'll face in life, right? Now, I have to tell you, I'm thankful for that. That may seem strange to you, but I'm afraid if it did, our relationship with the Lord would become so transactional that it would be void of love because we would always just be trying to follow the checklist that we find. But we know there's not a, there's not a Bible verse for every situation or dilemma we may face. At the same time, questions like that can be a struggle in our life because we understand that when Christ came, he changed everything. The old covenant became the new covenant. And with that, there is a freedom that comes in Christ that was not there before. We know the Bible says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's a freedom we know that comes from the slavery of sin, but there's also another type of liberty that comes. A liberty that Paul speaks to in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He's going to say to the church in Galatia, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a call for obedience on our life. At the same time, there is an understanding that there is some freedom and some liberty that we have in our lives to follow our conscience as the Spirit of God leads us. 
The clearest picture I know of that we see in Scripture of this shift took place, took place in the holiness codes when it came to what the people of God could eat. We know in the Old Testament it was clear that there were things that were considered clean and things that were considered unclean, things that God's people were not to eat. But if you remember, Jesus said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. Jesus was making it very clear that things had changed. And then in Acts chapter 10, if you're a hunter in the room, if you like to hunt, this should be one of your favorite verses in all the Bible. Peter, who grew up Jewish and was used to those holiness codes, he's, he's struggling through what this newfound liberty in Christ means, and especially when it comes to what is clean and unclean. And, and God gives Peter this vision, and he sees all these different animals, clean and unclean animals. And God says to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Can I get an amen? That might be the strongest amen I get all day. Right? There was a call there that there is a new liberty to be found. There is a new freedom to be found for those that are in Christ. So how do we navigate questions that may present a moral dilemma in our life? How does that impact our decision making for those who want to honor Christ in their life at the same time can't turn to chapter and verse? Well, let me just give you some short helps here before we dig into our passage today. Just some questions that you can ask yourself. Question like, is it needed? Is it helpful? Would Jesus make this decision? How will making this decision one way or the other, how will it impact my witness among those that are lost, that don't know Jesus? Will this decision that I make, will it exalt him? But there's another question that I think can help us in those moments of decision making. And it's what we're going to dive into today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And the question is this. How will this decision affect others? How will it impact other people? We began today in 1 Corinthians 8, a new section of the book of 1 Corinthians. Remember, I've told you that uh, in, in this book, you have kind of the first part, chapters 1 through 6, of Paul writing about things he had heard, but now we're digging in starting in chapter 7, to Paul writing back to things that the church has written to him about. So there, he, he's dealing with issues or concerns or questions that the people in Corinth have. And in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Paul is going to deal with this issue of food being sacrificed to idols. Now, I know right now you're thinking, man, I can't wait because I've been wondering in my life, how do I handle this issue in my life of food that has been sacrificed to idols, right? Well, I know that's ridiculous, right? But here's the reality is that we can look at what Paul is saying to this church in the first century and we can discover the heart of what Paul is saying and the truth of what Paul is saying and we can apply principles from that into our everyday life when it comes to some of the questions that I've asked. Now, I want you to understand for some context of diving in today, the uniqueness of what was happening in Corinth and how different it was from today. The reality was that in that day, Corinth being a Greco-Roman city was full of foreign gods, idols, false gods. 
There were temples everywhere. For almost every known need in your life, there was a God that you could go to and seek his favor or her favor for your personal benefit. In the city of Athens, it was said that there was over 30,000 gods, and some people said it would be easier to find a god than a man in that city. And it is in that context that these people would go and they would worship this God in a variety of different ways, but they would offer, one of the ways, they would offer meat sacrifices to this idol. And when the meat sacrifice would take place, what they would do is they would take, um, really it would go into thirds. A third of it would be used for the, the actual burnt offering to this idol. It, it would be used for that, for that reason. The second part would be used for the priest. The priests that were in that temple to that idol, they would take that meat and they would eat that meat for their own personal consumption. And then whatever was left over, they would take it and give it or sell it to the local meat market, to the butcher. And then the butcher would sell that meat into the community. And so much of the meat that the people would eat in Corinth would come from that source. But lastly... At times, there would be ceremonies, civic activities, wedding celebrations, things that would happen in the temple, and it would be at those celebrations that this same meat that was used to, in worship to these gods would be used there to provide the meal for those that had come to celebrate whatever occasion it was that they were celebrating. And it's in this place that you have these believers in Corinth, new believers. I mean, all of them, at, 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 when you look back, all of them at some level are new believers. There's some farther along in their journey than others. But all of them are trying to process how do we navigate this situation and how do we resolve it with who we are as a follower in Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to see what Paul has to say in chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. I want to invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. And we're going to work our way all the way through all 13 verses. Paul writes, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in the heavens or on earth, um, sorry, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat it and we're not better off if we do eat it. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't, the, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against your brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, 
If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let's pray. Father, we give you this time. We know this morning has been all about you. And God, we just acknowledge as we go into the teaching of your word now, we say in our soul and our spirit to you, God, we need to hear from you. God, would you help us as we long to honor you with the way that we live our life? And God, sometimes, a lot of times, Lord, there's moments we face where there's no easy answer. And I pray that today, God, that you would use your word to help us grow into spiritual maturity of how to navigate these moments in a way that brings honor to you and values others. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the situation in which we find ourselves today that we're going to do some work on. What we just read in light of this situation of this food that has been offered to idols and sacrifice and people eating it after it has been sacrificed to these idols is what you find are these so-called stronger believers. We'll say stronger believers just to help us. These stronger believers that have this knowledge that are practicing what they believe is their freedom, their liberty, if you will, of eating this meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And as we read this text, it seems that they are strongly convinced and that what they are doing is right. I believe that in this passage of 13 verses, there's three things that Paul is going to acknowledge of their position or their argument about why they have the right to do it. We see in verse 1, he says there, we know that we all have Knowledge. I think Paul there is referencing to the argument that the church in Corinth, that these believers are making of why they can do this is because they have this knowledge. The second one is in verse 4. We see, you'll, you'll see it in um, quotations. He says, verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. So that's part of the argument that they're making of why they believe they should be able to do this. The last one is in verse 8. He says, food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat it, and we are not better off if we do eat it. So part of the argument that this stronger, more spiritually mature group feels is that, listen, at the end of the day, food is just food. It doesn't matter. And so what we're going to see here in chapter 8 is that Paul is going to interact with these statements, and he's going to show that there's more for them than just practicing their rights. There's an example to consider. And so today as we look at verse 1 through 13, here's what we're going to see. Compelled by love, biblical decision-making always values fellow believers. Compelled by love, biblical decision-making, it always values fellow believers. Believers, Let's dig into this. Let's look at verse 1 through 3. Our first takeaway today is this, is that the mark of spiritual maturity is love. The mark of spiritual maturity is love. Paul begins here in verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. So he's making a lane change, right? We know in chapter 7, right, he was talking about sex, marriage, singleness, widows, right? And now we're going to make this lane change again like he does so often by saying now about. So now about this circumstance, and in a sense, we see kind of this long parenthesis here. 
This long kind of clause, this hesitation before he really digs in because he's getting to the root. He's getting to the heart of what's happening here as they're trying to walk through this issue of a right or a liberty that they feel they may have as a believer in Christ. He says here, we know that we all have knowledge. So Paul here, in a sense, is agreeing with them to a point, but then look at what he says here. But knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So we can see here there's a contrast of value that Paul is putting between knowledge and love. The quick response for us could be to say, well, he's saying here knowledge isn't important. And we know that that's not true. Right? Scripture calls us to love God with all that we are, including our minds. There's a place for that. When we look at the scriptures, and we'll see this later on in 1 Corinthians, there is a, a gift. One of the spiritual gifts is, is knowledge, a word of knowledge that is given to the people. So this is not a, a thing where we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but he's speaking here to these people who are so convinced of their value based on their knowledge. And what we find here is we found all throughout this book is once again we see where pride is creeping up and these believers in Corinth. Remember early on, it was about what camp they, believe, uh, they belonged to, Apollos. Some said Paul, right? He, he was addressing, he, he uh, used some sarcasm to say, man, you guys are already kings. You already sit on thrones, right? He's speaking to the pride in their life. And here again is this pride in the people of Corinth and their knowledge leading them to, what, to do what they think is right. But look at what Paul says here in verse 2. If anyone thinks he knows anything... He does not yet know it as he ought to know it. What's interesting is I think for a younger generation, they read that and go, huh? And an older generation reads that and goes, yep. Right? What Paul is saying is this. Listen, you think you know it. You think because you know some facts, even maybe you know some, some doctrine about God, you think you all have it figured out. But what Paul understands for them is that their study of doctrine has not led them to, to a reflection of Christ. He says, you think you know it because you're filling yourself with all of this knowledge. The problem is you're simply puffing yourself up. You're filling yourself up with hot air. Do you know somebody like that? Say Amen. I hope you didn't elbow somebody. Knowledge puffs up. But he says love here builds up. It's a construction idea of putting brick on brick on brick on brick. You see, the basis for their belief was that they were more spiritually mature because of their amount of knowledge. And he says that's not the case here. I love as Thomas Schreiner says, true knowledge is adorned with humility and accompanied by love. And if these qualities are lacking, one's knowledge has not been applied correctly. And so oftentimes that can be the challenge for the church today. Is that this idea of my relationship with the Lord only grows through the amount of knowledge that I obtain. And so oftentimes we can be quick to go to a Bible study and listen, there's a place for Bible study, but oftentimes God is okay with the Bible study. What he really wants you to do is to love people that you're learning about in the Bible study of how to love them. And what happens is my friend Clay Smith says is in the church, we have people that are so pursuing knowledge and forsaking love is that we have a bunch of Christian bobbleheads walking around. 
They got a big head, but they got a small heart. And so Paul's saying here, listen, the mark of true spiritual maturity, as they're going to try to navigate this question and this situation, the mark of true spiritual maturity is not their knowledge. It's not the doctrine. It's not all those things that they have compiled in themselves to think that now they have this right because they have obtained some level of understanding and knowledge that their other brothers and sisters haven't. But he's pressing into them that it comes from a place of love. So biblical decision-making is coming from this place of spiritual maturity. And it's not just going to be about what I know or what I can do. But that doesn't mean, and Paul's going to help us see this, that it doesn't mean we just let the pendulum swing completely to the other way. Let's look at verse 4 through 6. So the mark of spiritual maturity is love. It's not just knowledge. It's not just about what we know or what rights we think we have. But as we see in verse 4 through 6, we're going to see that the foundation of decision-making should be truth. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in the need for a new vehicle. And you have done your homework. You have studied your budget. You're well aware of what your monthly expense can be. You have looked, I mean, you've checked every possible scenario, and you know that I have to stay within, within this amount of money for my budget. At the same time, you've done your homework on vehicles. You've searched and searched and searched and searched and searched, and you have determined clearly, this is the type of vehicle that I need. Not just the type of vehicle. Well, it is the type of vehicle, but, but you've settled in on because of the gas mileage that it gets, because of the, uh, the, the safety benefits that come with it, because of the amenities that come with it. Like, I know not just this car, but this specific package of this car. All right, so you're prepared. You know how much you have to spend. You know the exact car that you want. You show up at the dealership, and they say, here's the deal. We have that car, but it actually has a nicer package with it, which is going to mean it's going to cost more. And if you want the one that you want, it's going to take a year for you to get it. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> what do you do in that moment? I mean, you, you know you need this car, and, and you've, you've studied it. You know this is the one that you need. And at the same time, you know the budget that you have, and you can't go over it. Let me tell you what you don't do. You don't walk outside to your child or your grandchild or your niece or your nephew, and you say, listen, can I just share with you the dilemma I'm in right now? I have my budget. I have the car, specific one. They have this, but it's a different, higher package. It's going to cost more. It's going to matter. What do I do? Why do you not ask a kid that question? With all due respect, kids, your first question is going to be, does it have a DVD player? Right? <laughs> Thank you for being honest, all right? That's a dilemma that you find yourself in. I love as... A guy you may have heard of named Ted Cunningham. In one of his talks, he's talking about the role of feelings in our life, and he references a psychologist friend of his, and he says, we should treat our feelings like we treat our kids. We care for them. We listen to them. But we don't let them make major decisions in our life. Because you understand that in this car scenario. 
right? A, a young child cannot comprehend all the dynamics at play. They're thinking about, is it going to have enough car holders for all my apple juice, right? And in the same way, when it comes to us as believers, the temptation may be to see here verse 1 through 3 and Paul say, listen, it's not about knowledge, it's about love. And so, okay, we need to make this decision on what feels right. But listen, feelings are great. God gave us feelings. We should embrace our feelings. But hear me clearly. Feelings are always the caboose. Truth drives the train. And so for Paul here in verse 4 through 6, he says, now about eating food sacrifice idols. So he's getting back to the topic after addressing the relationship of knowledge and love. He says, we know. He's agreeing with them. We know an idol is nothing in the world. And there is no God but one. So Paul is agreeing with them. For those who are saying, we have the right to eat this meat. Why? Because these gods don't exist. There's these temples that have been built and there's these rituals. But they are all for nothing. There is nothing there. Look at verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods. And he says it doesn't matter if they're in the heavens or are on the earth. As there are many gods and many Lords, now listen to verse 6. This is such a theologically rich verse. So yeah, the idols, they're nothing. They don't exist. But yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. Paul here is, is leaning into truth. He's leaning in here. If, you, if you're taking notes, you can write this down to Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Shema. It, it, it was the heart of the faith of those in Israel. The Lord our God is one. And so he sets it up here speaking of these idols as many gods that are empty and many lords that are empty. Isaiah 44, I believe it is. I love the, how they mock the gods. If you worship things that you make, how stupid is that, right? That's the Michael Wood paraphrase, all right? But, and so he says, in reference to all these so-called gods, there is one God, the Father. And then we see the divine nature of Christ and Paul's understanding that Jesus was fully God and him saying, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and that all things are through him and we exist through him. So we see, we see for Paul this understanding, this knowledge, this truth that is going to be the foundation of this decision making. Listen, when we have to walk into, into some, some decisions or a situation or a relationship where, where we don't find a chapter and verse in the Bible and we're trying to navigate through that, listen, love needs to be uh, present as we navigate that, no doubt. It is, a, it is the spiritual marker, I believe, of spiritual maturity and how we love. But truth better be very present as well. We better do our very best to understand what does God say? What does his word say? And so Paul here is in agreement. And if we were to stop there today, you would probably go home saying, okay, so Paul says, then we can eat this meat. Right? Because, I mean, the idols are nothing. They don't, they don't mean anything. They're empty. So, so what's the deal? Well, let's look at this last point in verse 7 through 13. 
Look at verse 7, however. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So in a sense, Paul here, the foundation of decision-making is truth. What, what does Paul know to be true? He's agreeing with the church in Corinth, those that were, were writing about this issue, that yes, idols are nothing. They're empty. They don't exist. It is false worship to a false, non-existent God. But Paul says, wait a second, there's more to this situation. He says there are those that don't have this knowledge. The knowledge here is not a reference, I believe, back to verse 6. is saying that they're not believers. They don't understand who God is and who Christ is and the significance of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I think here that he's referring, as we see here, someone who has spent so much time in idolatry. Right? This is the young man, the young lady, that they grew up into parents who, who worshiped these idols. And so their entire lives they grew up going and offering sacrifices. Their entire lives they were going to the temple for these civic ceremonies and wedding celebrations. And they were coming to these meals that would be held at the temple in honor of the gods. And they have lived in this, but now their life has been radically changed because they understood that there is one God. And while these idols may fill the heavens and the earth, as Brad said earlier, there is one God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. Amen? And so they, their eyes have been opened. They have come to faith in Christ. And now like a tadpole, they're starting to navigate what this means to live my life in a way that brings honor to Jesus. But the problem is, is it because they've been so immersed in this lifestyle of idolatry for so long that now they have come to know Christ, they are, they are trying to figure out what this is going to look like for them to honor Christ in the way that they live. And, and when these moral dilemmas come up, when these issues come up, that for some might be a clear-cut answer because of their maturity and because of their faith and their understanding, there are others, they're just not there yet. They're not a believer. I mean, they're, they're not an unbeliever. They love Jesus. They're just trying to navigate how to live their faith out. And so we see here that it says that up until now, when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. The conscience there, that's the inner referee of your life. You hear me? Your conscience, that's the inner referee that is saying yes, no, or that's a flag, or let's go to the review booth, right? I mean, that is the inner conscience that's helped guiding you. And he's saying this young believer, because they're young in their faith, they're young in their understanding that if they are to eat this meat, even though the gods are nothing, it says there that their conscience is weak and therefore they are defiled. It puts them in a place that is not a healthy place for a believer. And so we see in verse 8 where he references, I believe, one of the arguments that the church was making. Well, Paul, I mean, food doesn't bring us close to God. It's almost like I can hear them in this conversation that's happening through letter of saying, okay, Paul, we understand that, that their conscience is weak and that they may feel defiled. But Paul... 
Come on, Paul. Food's nothing. That doesn't make us close to God. doesn't take us far from God. You're better off if you do or worse off if you don't. Listen to what Paul says here. And this is where for us, I, I, I want you to see as we, as we kind of land the plane here. When we think about biblical decision making, the willing sacrifice of my freedom values fellow believers. The willing sacrifice of my freedom that values fellow believers. Because look at what he says here in verse 9. But be careful. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. He's wanting them to understand that their decisions, their right, their liberty does not just affect themselves. And he plays it out for them in verse 10. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, if someone sees this, this stronger believer, if you will, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So Paul's just helping them to understand. He uses this word encourage. It's the same word that he uses at the very beginning, talk about how love builds up. He says, now because of your actions, the weaker brother is now being built up, but what? To defile his conscience, right? To do what in the depths of his heart at this moment in his journey with Christ, he believes and feels is wrong. And now I want you to feel the weight of this. Here's why this matters. Here's why this matters for you today. Look at what he says in 11 and 12. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died. He wants you to see the value of this person, that Christ died for him. So we better consider him as well. Look at what he says, is ruined by your knowledge. Now listen, this doesn't take all responsibility off of this, this person with the weak conscience. But he's wanting them to feel that if they're going to be living so driven by their pride and their knowledge of living out their liberty the way that they want and not caring about anyone else, he says, if you're going to live in that manner, you need to know that it is going to ruin them. That word that he uses, ruin there, it's the same word that we see in John 3, 16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not, what, perish, ruin, be destroyed. He's wanting them to feel the weight of their actions. He says, now when you sin like this against your brothers and sisters and wound, that's an active word there, you wound them. You wound their weak conscience. Listen to what he says. You are sinning against Christ. Now, I'll be honest with you. This makes for a challenging um, relationship between the strong brother and the weaker brother. Right, Because we know that the weaker brother, we bear the responsibility of our actions. We understand that. But Paul is pressing in and wanting them to understand that, listen, my actions, whether I determine if something is right or wrong, is not always the end of the conversation. The question is, not is it right or wrong, but in this decision, how is it going to affect others? And if I am unwilling 
If I'm unwilling to make a decision in my life without considering how it's going to affect my brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul says you are sinning against Christ. So what do we do? What do we do in that situation? This takes us back to our main idea today. That compelled by my love, biblical decision making, it values my fellow believer. And so Paul says, therefore, in light of this, therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fail. Notice Paul doesn't just say here, meat, sacrifice to idols. He just says food. If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. As you think about navigating those dilemma moments in your life of making a decision where there's no chapter or verse to point to, yes, we need to ask ourselves, will Christ be honored in this? Is Christ, um, is, is Christ giving me an example to follow in this? Do I need it? How will it affect my public witness? But Paul says here that when we're walking through moments where it may be difficult to make a decision, we are to consider how will it affect my brother and sister? My friend Clay Smith, I mentioned him earlier, but he summarizes this entire passage with this question. At the end of the day, am I pulling people towards Jesus or am I pushing them away? I love to fly in airports. Well, I don't really fly in airports. I go to airports to fly. You got me, right? I used to not like it. I had some bad experiences. I've shared those with you all before, but but I like it. And I like being in airports because I like the people watch, right? And, and I've told you before, you don't have a perfect pastor, right? You know that? One of the reasons I can say that with confidence is because the amount of times I chuckle when I see people running through the airport. Let's be honest, you do it too, right? It's just something about people watching, right, that I enjoy that. And one of the things that the airports they have are these moving walkways. Are you familiar with them? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I feel like Usain Bolt on those things, right? Like, it, you know, it's just long, it looks like a long treadmill, right? Like 50-yard treadmill, right? And, and you just hop on and you can take it easy, right? Or you can believe that you're part of the Olympic team and you're going to like mall walk and you feel like, man, I am moving, right? Now I want you to imagine that you're traveling today and you've, fly into Atlanta to make your connection and you're walking from one terminal to the next and, and you glance over and you see that moving walkway going this way and you see me walking as hard as I can the other way. You'd be like, not only do we not have a perfect pa pastor, we have a stupid pastor. He's not smart. And in that moment, what if you came up and, and you flipped a switch and all of a sudden that thing started going the right way for me? Boy, I'd high-five you on the way by. And I think what Paul is getting to is this, is that when we navigate situations in life that aren't always cut and dry, we need to think about which way is that moving walkway happening in our life. For our younger brothers and sisters, is it helping them move towards Jesus or because of my knowledge and believing I have this right and this liberty, is that moving walkway going backwards so brothers and sisters are struggling to process what it looks like in their life? 
And hear me today, when I talk about brothers and sisters in Christ, it can be easy to think about our friends and life group. But for some of us, that means the people in our home. For some of us, that means the people in our families and in our workplace. That we're trying to navigate this life when those moments come to make decisions that honor the Lord. And in honoring the Lord, we are thinking through the filter, is this gonna help my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is this gonna hurt my brothers and sisters in Christ? So the mark of spiritual maturity is love. And in that love, compelled by that love, my decisions, they're gonna value fellow believers. Would you bow your heads with me today? Maybe today you walked in here and this could not be more divinely timed for your life because of a situation you're walking through right now. Maybe today this is just the Lord preparing you for a decision that's to come. Or maybe today in this message, maybe you find yourself on the other end. You're a newer believer and, and you've heard today that, listen, our relationships and decisions affect others, but there's a responsibility for all of us to desire to honor the Lord in truth. Or maybe you're here today and you would think, what a crazy thing that people would be willing to determine their life decisions based on how it affects others. That seems so different than what culture says, and you're right. It's because as a follower of Jesus Christ, we recognize that this one God and Father, this one Lord Jesus Christ who came to, to die for our sins, he said it clearly that I have come not to be served, but to serve many and to give my life as a ransom for others. We want to live this way because we serve a God who is this way, who gives himself for others. And so, Lord, today we come to you. And I believe with my whole heart that for those of us in here that are believers in Jesus Christ, we would say that a year from now, we want to be in a stronger, healthier, more vibrant relationship with you than we are right now. And we know, God, that we get there day by day by day by day. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would use this message to be an area of growth in our life as we think about moments in our life of making decisions and, and the filters through which we think through those decisions. God, I, I pray that we would hear the heart of Paul, that there is a place for truth and there is a place for love and there is a place for considering how it affects others. And so God, help us, all of us, to be growing in our maturity towards Christ's likeness. For Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.